0: Good morning. You can keep your Bibles open to the book of Genesis. We're going to be jumping around from a few texts there. Even the ones we've just read or had read to us, we'll be looking at these again and a few others. The story of Abraham and Sarah, and we'll, as you saw in the story, you know their name changed from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah, but for sake of Uh, Our purposes this morning, I'll just probably say Abraham or Sarah throughout the sermon this morning. But it is a story that causes us laughter, right? And what a great reversal. Some of you are sitting here this morning, and you're nowhere near 100 years old, and you can only imagine if God or an angel showed up to you and said, you're going to have a son. You would laugh, partly because of your age or because you've taken steps to hope that that never happens again. How can this be? This is the amazing thing about this, these Old Testament narratives, especially in the book of Genesis. As we open this book, it's, Genesis is such a foundational book for us. In fact, today in our Old Testament class that we're that going to meet here in the uh, auditorium, here's a little plug for you, Robert. Uh, you're going to be covering some of these texts today, even this, this one about uh, Sarah and Isaac. It's foundational to what we believe. It's, it's foundational to who we understand God to be. It's, un, it's foundational to what we uh, understand in God's character and his revelation to us and what we're actually putting our faith in when we come to God in Jesus Christ. And what we see here from the very beginning is that God is working to give life. If you think back with me, or maybe you can, if you want to look back into Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Well, let me set the stage first. What happens in Genesis 1 and 2? God creates all things. God creates the world and everything in it. He gives life, and it's abundant, and it's flourishing, and it's meant to uh, permeate the whole world. And, of course, Adam and Eve then fall into sin. Eve is deceived by the serpent and gives of the fruit to Adam, and he takes and eats also, and sin enters into this innocent creation. So God comes in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15, and speaks to the serpent and to Adam and Eve. And here's what God says. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, that is, her descendants, her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." See, from the very beginning, even into the scene of sin, where sin enters in and, and, and really messes up this entire beautiful, innocent creation that's built for life and human flourishing in every way, God speaks hope now into this situation. From the very beginning, even in the background, with the background of sin, God is going to do something to bring about life. So he gives them a glimmer of hope. He gives them a glimmer of what we would call the gospel. This is called the first saying or the first speaking of the gospel to Adam and Eve and to all humanity. And so they begin to have an expectation, a hope, a promise that there will be life. There will be a future for them. There will be a Savior who's going to reverse this curse, who's going to take away the penalty from for sin and death. So from the very beginning, there's an expectation of faith. And and as you continue to read through Genesis chapter 3, Adam takes up this expectation with full force. Even when he turns and he names Eve. Remember, Adam had named all the animals of the garden, but he he had not yet given a name to his wife. Well, why? At the first time, there was no wife to be found, and God had to create her for him. And now, after this episode here in chapter 3, verse 20 of Genesis, Adam does this, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. So when when Adam gives his wife this name, Eve, Adam is taking hold of the promise of God and he's expecting God to keep his promise that there will be a son, there will be a seed who will reverse this curse and give life. And So he affirms that. In the woman that he's going to spend out, spend the rest of his days together, he names her Eve to, to remind himself and remind her that she will be the mother of all that is living. What hope, even in the backdrop of sin. So as Genesis unfolds, it shouldn't surprise us then that this idea of giving birth to children and the antagonistic sort of theme of being childless or barren begins to emerge Throughout the storyline of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, it even presses into the New Testament. It doesn't surprise us that this is the issue, but many times as we look at this in, in Genesis, we simply read it as, as an emotional issue in the lives of these characters, or it's a, a crisis point. And yes, it is an emotional issue, issue, and yes, it is a crisis point, but God is using these times of childbearing and birth and even the struggle of barrenness to reveal his character to his people. And to show how he's going to work with his people. So our theme today, as we've already heard many times, that this is what's being revealed through the book of Genesis and through these stories. God's character is that he is the God of life. But even as he reveals that to his people, he's dealing with his people, and he's trying to bring them along in faith and understanding that they might believe in him for this. They might trust him that he is the God who gives life. If we were to study the book of Genesis, and I would encourage you to do this sometime, to study just the, the amazing storyline that weaves in and out of, of childbearing and barrenness through Genesis, you, you would maybe ask the question, well, why? Why would we study this? And we don't have to look far, right, in our own culture, our own church. A motivation for studying childbearing and children and being mothers and fathers, it's not difficult to find. Many husbands and wives who are here have faced miscarriages, they face childlessness. Many are single and they want to be married, they want to have a family. Many in our congregation face such things. Many are looking to answers. Does God have answers to these questions? And indeed he does. But we don't come to the text primarily to see these questions answered. We come to the text primarily to know God first. And as we see how God reveals himself through these stories, through the lives of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Rachel and Leah, and even one you might not think about, Judah and Tamar. We begin to undersee what God is doing with his people and how he's revealing himself to us. And as we understand who God is, we begin to lay a foundation and a framework for how we deal with this problem and the blessing throughout Scripture and even today. It also becomes clear that God's people don't handle this situation biblically. It also becomes clear that these people tend to view children as their savior. And in some ways that's easily understood, right? Because God promised Adam and Eve that there would be a seed. There would be a son. And so they have placed all their hopes in many times in a child. You see the emotion come out in many ways. You hear from, from characters in a story like Rachel who cries out, to Jacob, give me children or else I die. This is deep. This is emotional. But it starts to reveal to us that their their hope and their faith is sometimes misplaced. And their, their understanding of who God is is misplaced. And so God continues to work this out. It also becomes clear that many times people struggle to trust and believe in their God. They get to a situation and their unbelief emerges. They get very, very creative when they think that God has dropped the ball on his word, on his promise. Yeah, these might be very culturally acceptable means, but they take it for themselves the idea that they need to help God out. Yeah, God may not be all powerful like that. So it seems that God is working with his people. And as we study just this brief uh, section this morning in Genesis, we'll, we know that these are, this is just one representation of what God is doing with his people and how he's revealing, and, and there's many other texts we could look at, but we're going to focus in primarily today on the story of Abraham and Sarah and what God is doing with them. So where do we begin? We begin simply with this. There's an understanding deep within us as humans who are created in the image of God that bearing children Conceiving and bearing children is a part of the normal, sort of natural way that God created life to work. And as Christians, we we view it not just simply as the normal thing or the natural thing, but as the divine blessing of God. So we see throughout the scriptures that children are a gift, children are a heritage, and we begin to see that, that God is a giver of good gifts and gives joy to his people. Even when We do have testimonies of moms who struggle with their children. They still come back around and say, but they're still a joy, right? We see that. We understand that. The issue, though, of not having children, as you see, and as I alluded to already, is deeply emotional. For Christians or not, it's ubiquitous in our culture, even today. And it's critical for us to understand this reality that God is The creator of life. He's the creator of life in the beginning, and he's the giver of life today, and the sustainer of life forever. And what these stories point us to is really where we're trying to get to eventually with the text today, is that God just doesn't give physical life to humanity, but also spiritual life. So we begin to see the themes come out, in the examples of of Sarah and Abraham and, and others, that even in their own physical conception and the physical birth where, where people were physically barren and physically fruitless or even physically dead, as described by the text. God is pointing us to the theme. God is pointing us to the idea that God can also give spiritual life and spiritual birth to people who are spiritually dead and spiritually barren and spiritually fruitless. So these physical stories and these promises that we see through these individuals point us to the greater reality of what God is doing spiritually. And he's bringing that about by by completing and fulfilling the physical promises to these patriarchs, to these mothers and these fathers of ours in the faith. So let's look here at Abraham and Sarah. Let's look and see how God has made a promise and how God's word is at stake in keeping his word and how God intervenes to provide children and to give life, to perver- not only just to, to give them blessing, but to, but to preserve his word and show he is faithful. Because many times we question, just like they did, are God's promises merely puffs of air or are they real? So the story of Abraham and Sarah begins with a brief statement in, in Genesis 11, actually before what we read this morning, and it's in this section where there's a genealogy, and in chapter 11, verse 30, there's this tiny statement which sets the backdrop for everything that's going to come. Now, Sarai was barren, and she had no children. Now, in a genealogy, a, a statement of lineage, that tends to be a problem statement. You're reading along, and it says, and this guy lived, and he fathered a son, and this guy lived, and he fathered a son, and this guy lived, and he fathered a son, and this guy lived, and he fathered a son. And you get to Sarah, and it says she was barren and had no children. The genealogy stops. And then we get to chapter 12. And so with that background, we get to chapter 12, verse 1. And we begin to read. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the story goes on and Abraham obeys. But, but all the while now there's in this, the background this reality. God has just made a promise to bless him, to make his name great, to make him a nation, to bless all the nations of the world through him, and there's a problem. He doesn't have a son. And then you get to chapter 15. The next few chapters, they go on, 12, 13, 14, all the way to 15, and this idea of offspring and blessing continues, and there's too many texts for us to read, but the theme becomes so clear. Abraham's going to have a son. Abraham's going to have descendants. We get to Genesis 15 and Abraham reminds us as the reader and he reminds God again of the glaring problem in God's plan. Look what he says in verse verse 3 of chapter 15. Behold, you have given me no offspring. What's important to see here is that Abraham... Recognizes the problem, but he also recognizes that God is the divine solution to the problem. He's the one that's sovereignly in control of this problem. God has not given him a son. But have you ever found yourself coming to God like this and reminding God that there are problems with his plan? God, you promised. But have you forgotten that you've not kept your end of the deal yet? It's so very clear to you that God has forgotten some key ingredient in the recipe for your life. There's some essential step that he has forgotten to complete for you. It's like you went to Smashburger and ordered a hamburger, and there's no meat when you get it. Simply a bun or lettuce. Not even bacon. Bacon. Or you go to a coffee shop and you order Americano, but there's no espresso. It's just water. There's a problem. There's something missing, clearly. There's something wrong with this picture. Abraham had been hearing over and over and over again, it had been emphasized over and over and over again, the promise of God that he would have a son, that he would be blessed, that he would be a great nation, and that he would be a blessing to other nations. And Abraham begins to think, well, Okay, maybe God wants me to take matters into my own hand then. Maybe in God's promise there was some sort of metaphorical or symbolic sort of understanding that I'm missing, so I need to figure this out on my own. So Abraham comes to God, as the story continues, in chapter 15, and he suggests to God, which is another great thing, sometimes we question God's plan, and then we come to God and give God suggestions God, you know, if I was in your place, here's here's probably how I would handle this situation. So if you want to go ahead and take my counsel, everything will work out just dandy. Not the case. Abraham comes to God with his suggestion, and God repeats his promise to Abraham again. He says, basically, Abraham, forget your suggestion. Trust me. And this time, God makes it very clear that Abraham would have his very own son. And that he would be a fulfillment of the very promise God has made. So Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. He said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Now, there's an emotional response here. Fear not. Whenever we stop trusting the promises of God, whenever we don't see a clear path ahead, there's, there tends to be fear. And God comes to Abraham. He says, fear not. Just like he came to Mary, he said, Mary, don't fear through the angel. Fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him again, said, This man shall not be your heir your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. See, here's the glimpse of what God's doing. God continues to reveal himself as the giver of life. He, he's going to do this through being faithful to his promises to Abraham and to Sarah. God is the covenant keeping God. He's covenant-keeping power. He's going to take the initiative to do this. But even after God promises again and tries to comfort Abraham, notice the immediate failure that follows this. And again, the reinterpretation of God's promises in chapter 16. The focus now turns to Sarah's response. This lays out Sarah's struggle with her childlessness. She, too, comes to God with her own solution. Okay, Abram offered his. He didn't really think about it very much. His solution was uh, half-baked. It's not going to work. I get that. But now Sarah comes. I've got the better solution. She comes to God. And she also states that God is responsible for her condition in verse 2 of 16. She says this, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And, And here we begin to see very clearly that both husband and wife see this as their issue. It's not just one or the other. It's theirs together. And Sarah, as she's lacking understanding, as she's lacking faith, she goes on to say to Abram, Go into my servant. It may be, love that phrase, it might be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Of Sarai. As a side note, that last phrase should ring some bells for us as we're reading through Genesis. The scene tends to echo the scene in the Garden of Eden after Eve was deceived and then gave the fruit to Adam to eat. God said to Adam in his curse, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. What's the point? What's the connection? Sarah, like Eve, is deceived into thinking that there's a better way outside of God's way. There's a better life waiting for you if you just sort of get creative with God's word and and twist his promises. And Man, God's not acting. I need to come up with my own idea, my own plan. Instead of simply waiting for God and trusting his clear promises. So we could say that both Eve and Sarah are guilty of reinterpreting God's clear word and God's clear promises to make them more up to date, relevant for us. Sounds really good. The solutions they offer are culturally acceptable ideas, but they're opposed to God. They're opposed to his ways and his promises. And as we go down that path, we actually undermine the very word of God and his faithfulness and his display of glory in the world. So Sarah's solution involved giving one of her female servants to Abraham Abraham, to raise up an heir. Creative and acceptable in the culture. But God rejects both of these. It's clear from the text that this was not God's solution. And the tension that emerges between the son Ishmael of Hagar and Isaac and Sarah grows throughout the story. Then we come to chapter 17, verses 1 to 8. God again restates his promise to Abraham. He changes his name to Abraham and reemphasizes that Abraham will be exceedingly fruitful. And by this time, we just start to think, seriously? Okay, we keep hearing this over and over and over again. God, when are you going to act? And then his offspring would take part in the blessings of the covenant. Whose offspring? Abraham's offspring. So in Genesis 17, 17, here's what happens. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to me, a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And God, once again, reiterates his promise in verse 19. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall, be, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And then God turns again to Sarah in chapter 17, verses 14 to 21, 15 to 21. And he focuses on the relationship of Sarah to the covenant. And God reestablishes his promises with her. Despite her unfaithfulness and despite her unbelief, just like Abram was unbelieving at a time, God changes her name and emphasizes the descendants that will come from her and the life that will be established from her. And then finally we get to Genesis 18, verse 9. And there's these angels who come, these messengers of God, and, and they say to Abram, where is your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and your, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah was listening at the door behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in the years, and the way of women had ceased to be with her. She laughed to herself. Abram laughed out loud when he laughed. Sarah laughs to herself in disbelief. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord says, why does Sarah laugh? Sarah said, "Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old?" In verse fourteen, here's the most amazing statement. God says in response, "Is anything, is anything, too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son." Man, is anything too hard for the Lord? This, this pushes us to the idea, the spiritual idea that we're, we're headed towards and that we're trying to emphasize this morning, that God is not just the giver of life physically and in creation, but he's the giver of spiritual life. This, this phrase, this idea gets echoed, as I've alerted, alluded to already, with the story of Mary. And Gabriel comes to Mary and Mary basically says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the response of the angel to her is, essentially, is anything. Too hard? Is it anything impossible? God will be faithful to his promises. God will be faithful to Abraham and Sarah. God will be faithful to Isaac and Rebekah. God will be faithful to Jacob. God will be faithful to Judah. God will be faithful to his people. He's the giver of life. So in Hebrews 11... We read this, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, that's Abraham, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And this wasn't just the physical descendants that, of Abraham that, that the author of Hebrews is speaking of. These are the spiritual descendants of Abraham as well that, that God has grafted in through his power and his life-giving grace to those who will believe in Jesus Christ. As, as you go through the story, right, you see how it unfolds. All the while, they're looking for a son. They're looking for the Savior to come. And ultimately, this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. And, and the story unfolds, and, and we get to the New Testament, and even Zechariah and Elizabeth and Luke 1. And it says this, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And Zechariah, if you remember the story, he responds in unbelief, and he says to the angel, How can I know this? And the sign that the angel gives him is silence for the duration of his wife's pregnancy. And finally, when the baby is born, he speaks with joy and gives his name, John, John the Baptist. And right on the heels of this, the story of Mary and the angel. And Mary says to the angel, chapter 1, verse 34 of Luke, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. See, what is God doing through these stories? As he points us towards the coming Christ, the coming Savior. He's emphasizing for us time and time and time again that God gives life. And he does so according to his sovereign will. He does so according to his timing and his way. At the right time, the text says, in the fullness of time, these things happen and God acts. Despite the sinfulness of his people, despite the unbelief of his people, despite the human impossibilities of the deadness of their bodies, God gives life. Is anything too hard for the God who can give life. We get to the New Testament and we see clearly God turns sin and disobedience into obedience and righteousness for his glory. God turns unbelief into faith to display the power of his word and his promises. And God turns physical impossibilities into the displays of his divine power. See, life, blessing, regeneration comes through the God. Who can give life. So, Jesus speaking with his disciples when they're talking about a rich man and how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, This. Well, the disciples speak first, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then in John 3, the story of Nicodemus, as he comes to Jesus at night, Jesus answers and says to Nicodemus, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of, born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but, but you do not know where it goes from or where it goes. So it is, So it is with everyone who is born by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul speaking to the church at Corinth and proclaiming the mysteries and the glories of the gospel it's proclaimed and how it, it's effect, the effect of God's word on people's live, lives brings transformation. And here's what he says, for we, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the creator at the initial creation this same God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See, here's the amazing thing God is doing through us and through his people. He's taking us who are broken and barren spiritually and fruitless people. We're dead in the trespasses of our sin, as Ephesians says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, he pours out his grace on us and makes us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. See, what happens in this scenario, this situation, God is glorified. God is magnified because we are dead and helpless and unable to come to life unless he acts. And God does this. He gets the glory. God does this, not just physically, but also spiritually. In these examples in the Old Testament, we see that, that God is the giver of life. Whether we're truly physically barren or fruitless or having dead bodies, or we're spiritually fruitless and physically dead or spiritually dead, God is pointing us to the promises that we have in Christ, who's able to raise us, who's able to give life. God is pointing us to the promises that we have in Christ. So, our message this morning, not merely for mothers, fathers, or children, but for all of us. Here's the reality. Here's the God whom we serve. He can give life in the most impossible situations through Jesus Christ. So he is the God who gives life to you. He sustains your life, and he will give you eternal life to all who believe in him.